This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Nitin Seem, and thanks for joining us for our latest Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Joanna Skrobik and colleagues entitled, Low-Dose Nocturnal Dexmedetomidine Prevents ICU Delirium, a Randomized Placebo-Controlled Trial. We are joined for our discussion today by Dr. Skrobik, as well as Dr. Tim Gerard, who's one of the authors of the accompanying editorial. I'd like to start the podcast by inviting Dr. Skrobik to introduce herself and mention any disclosures she might have. Um, thank you for the invitation. My name is Irina Skrobik. I'm a clinician scientist at McGill and um, an intensive care um, and internal medicine specialist. My interest in delirium and sedation and analgesia has um, spanned probably the last 20 years of my research life. Thank you, Dr. Skrobik. And, and Dr. Gerard? Hi, Nitin and Yano. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. I'm Timothy Gerard. I'm a Associate Professor of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, and I've been studying delirium for about the last 15 years and uh, have specifically focused on the mechanisms underlying delirium as well as the ways that we can prevent and treat delirium in critically ill patients. And my only disclosure is that I receive funding from the National Institutes of Health for research in this area. I have no commercial interests. Okay. Well, well, thank you both. Uh, and I, I wanted to start the podcast for, with a question for Dr. Gerard. Luckily, we have two experts in the field, and I wanted to give some of our listeners, uh, our listeners, some background on uh, on ICU delirium. So, first, if you could describe broadly what is delirium, and why it happened, why does it happen so frequently in the ICU, and what, if any, bad outcomes are associated with ICU delirium. Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. So I generally think of delirium using the definitions outlined by the American Psychiatric Association in the DSM. Uh, The most recent version was the DSM-5, and delirium is defined as an acute and fluctuating change in both level of consciousness or attention and cognition. And this generally occurs uh, due to a medical condition. In the ICU, there are many different reasons for becoming delirious and in In fact, it's quite common in critically ill patients precisely because they have so many different risk factors for delirium. Both the features of the critical illness and some of the treatments as well, we believe, based on data, contribute to delirium. We've found over the years, and uh, Dr. Skrobik has done much of this seminal work, as well as Wes Ely, who is my mentor at Vanderbilt, and I and others, and, and now in many different populations who are critically ill, whether that's a medical ICU population, surgical ICU, cardiac ICU, and even neurologic ICU more recently has been studied, that delirium in the context of critical illness is associated with numerous adverse outcomes, not only in the short-term setting, for example, associated with prolongation of the duration of mechanical ventilation or the time in the ICU or time in the hospital, but also with long-term outcomes. And one that's intuitively related to delirium but also has been borne out in the literature is long-term cognitive impairment. We found in multiple studies now that patients who have delirium in the ICU 
are at highest risk for having long-term cognitive deficits that persist sometimes for many years after recovery from their critical illness. I think it's important also to um, highlight the human dimension of delirium and its impact on um, patients and families and caregivers um, because when someone wakes up in the intensive care unit and they're disoriented, their perception is a very disturbing one, particularly if they realize that they're not being their normal selves. A lot of patients will uh, experience delirium as uh, a fearful um, uh, episode where they are paranoid about uh, being harmed. And I think you can imagine that if you've been involved in a car accident or if you've had a severe infection and you don't remember uh, losing consciousness that that you can, if you wake up tied down in a bed with machinery strapped on you, that that's a very disturbing experience. And the critical care environment is not necessarily one where we spend a lot of time talking to patients and trying to figure out how they feel. Nurses are um, disturbed by delirium because when patients become agitated and combative, um, the equipment that they're attached to can be uh, uh, considered a potential risk. And and I think physicians also have a, a disengagement vis-a-vis people who they can't make contact with. So it's distressful in the short term and disruptive in terms of workflow. But there's a dimension of it that is a, 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 a very um, disturbing one. Families who see a loved one that doesn't recognize them or that is behaving in a very unusual way also carry that out of the intensive care unit and can have um, long-term uh, sequelae from from it. So I think it's important to recognize it, not only to say, well, it's a medical condition that can be defined in this way and that has long-term consequences, but also to um, heighten our awareness of the need for reassurance and comfort um, regardless of the prognosis. I think that's a great point, Dr. Skrovic, and, and it's particularly the, the point about family members who then, you know, see their loved one not acting anywhere near their, themselves and, and being quite alarmed by that. So I'd like to ask Dr. Skrovic now to, to talk about a little bit of a, um, an introduction to us to the, to the current study. It's a two-center phase two trial where you studied whether nocturnal dexmedetomidine prevents delirium in ICU patients who are at risk for delirium. So could you give us a little bit of behind the scenes? How did you come up with the idea for this study? You know, the idea has been uh, uh, maturing for a long time in, in, in a variety of ways. But I think that the, the area that uh, has been... There's several things in critical care that we can do better. And I think one of the apparently simple ones that we fail at as a community is ensuring that people get enough sleep and that the quality of the sleep that they get is as good as possible. And the um, there are um, um, studies suggesting that if people sleep well, uh, their probability of developing, or if you implement non-pharmacological interventions that will improve sleep quality, people will be less delirious. Conversely, 
um, sleep deprivation can cause delusions. So there's a probably a relationship between the amount of sleep that you get and your capacity to think clearly and possibly to not become delirious. There's always that, you know, where is the threshold of what is normal and what is not normal. Um, but the, but the, the, those were the thoughts that, that um, uh, pre- preceded the um, proposal and the writing and the final doing of this study. We hoped to alter sleep at night and make delirium better. That was the original. That was our original thought. And the reason that we wanted to look at sleep with a molecule that has um, a very different pharmacological profile than the sedatives that we commonly use in critical uh, care is that the when you look at the very few studies that have looked at uh, that have addressed sleep patterns in the ICU. All those that look at GABA agonists like benzodiazepines or propofol suggest that the already fragmented and abnormal sleep gets worse in the majority of patients that it that sedatives are given to. So routinely in critical care, we you know we will be doing rounds in the afternoon or sometimes the way we do in Kingston when I round on the in the in the evening we do tuck in rounds and the nurse will say the patient is getting uh, agitated we would like to make sure that they will sleep can we give them something to sleep and most of the time those people will be prescribed sedatives that are um, that that actually decrease. Um, the depth and the qual- and the amount of REM sleep that people get. When the only study that I'm aware of looking at dexmethadomidine, which was the molecule that we looked at, suggests that that disruption perhaps doesn't occur occurs doesn't occur to the same extent with dexmethadomidine. So we thought, wouldn't it be nice if we gave a medication at night? So that it would only, so that it would um, affect or improve the way people slept in the ICU, and wouldn't it be nice if we could also show that this molecule that has been associated with lower delirium rates overall um, uh, also reduced delirium, but given in a restrained manner, because in Canada at the moment, and at the U.S. at the time, in the U.S. at the time the study was planned, it was a very expensive drug to buy, and so its administration was limited by pharmacoeconomic consideration. So those were the thoughts behind the the conception of the study. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Skorovic, and I, I think you've really outlined a lot of the important um, issues there, and, and uh, you know I, the the concerns that uh, meds like benzodiazepines alter the quality of sleep, and there's less restorative sleep, um, REM and slow wave sleep. Um, I guess before we get into the specifics of the, your current study, I just would like to close the loop on a discussion of dexmedetomidine and delirium. This study is about prevention. Um, I'd like to ask Dr. Gerard if you could. Uh, uh, try to summarize the evidence that dexmedetomidine is helpful, not in the prevention, but rather the treatment um, of delirium. Sure. I think it's an important question, and there are a number of studies that have looked at that. Uh, originally, the earliest studies, uh, including one that Pratik Pandey led uh, in the group that I was a part of at Vanderbilt, examined whether dexmedetomidine used as an alternative to more traditional sedatives 
when managing mechanically ventilated patients in the ICU had a differential effect on delirium. So, for example, in the MENS trial that we conducted, we compared lorazepam to dexmedetomidine, and then in the larger multicenter SEDCOM trial, dexmedetomidine was compared with midazolam. So, it, so in both of those circumstances, you're looking at whether or not using dexmedetomidine, which, you, as Joanna pointed out, affects uh, patients in a very different way mechanistically than GABAergic agents such as the benzodiazepines. So uh, comparing an alpha-2 agonist compared with a GABA agonist would end up reducing the amount of delirium. And what both of those trials found was that delirium was markedly reduced for mechanically ventilated patients sedated with dexmedetomidine compared with a benzodiazepine. But the one problem with those trials is that it was difficult to know or really impossible to know from those data whether dexmedetomidine was truly treating delirium or whether it was simply reducing risk because you were eliminating the use of a deliriogenic agent. And there have been many, many studies showing that benzodiazepines at high doses increase the risk of delirium. So those trials were important, but they didn't necessarily answer the question you asked, does dexmedetomidine truly treat delirium? There have been more recently some trials that looked at that question, actually, and I think the best example is the Dahlia trial uh, from the ANZIX Clinical Trials Group. Michael Reed and colleagues, in a smaller number of patients, but nevertheless an important study, compared dexmedetomidine with placebo in a randomized controlled trial. And they found that in that setting, mechanically ventilated patients who were treated with dexmedetomidine rather than placebo did have a faster resolution of delirium. So these trials together do suggest that dexmedetomidine is helpful for the treatment of delirium. Now, all of these have been done in mechanically ventilated patients. There are some other studies that examined dexmedetomidine for delirium and non-mechanically ventilated patients, but typically less severely ill, as you would imagine. And so in, in the ICU setting, I think these trials suggest that dexmedetomidine can help to, prevent, to treat delirium. But again, none of those address the question that Skrobik and, uh, and colleagues in this trial specifically evaluated, which is could, it, could dexmedetomidine prevent delirium in this same high-risk population of mechanically ventilated ICU patients? Thank you, Tim, for, for that uh, explanation. Uh, and I think that leads us very nicely into Dr. Skrobik's trial. Um, so this, it's a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study in 100 patients from two ICUs, one a 16-bed med surge ICU in Montreal and the other a 10-bed uh, medical ICU in Boston. So Dr. Skrobik, could you talk to uh, tell us about some of the specifics of the studies, uh, specifically, you know, what sort of patients were enrolled. Uh, you know, Tim had mentioned how sick uh, patients were in some of these prior trials. And can you tell us the, the the protocol, walk us through the protocol for the control as well as the, the patients receiving dexmedetomidine in terms of testing and treatment? Sure. Um, so we wanted to have a trial that was... Um, easy to implement for um, ICU nurses and that would be uh, transposable into the um, uh, real world so that it would be a, a, a sort of um, 
you know, practical, very practical to 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 apply. And I and I think that there. So what we what we um, uh, asked the nurses to do were was to um, uh, consider um, reducing the doses of sedatives if the patients were already receiving um, sedatives in uh, an infused form by 50%. We left all of the analgesics that the patients were receiving in the um, dose that they were prescribed in. And then we asked um, uh, the nurses to start um, uh, dexmedidomidine infusion and titrate it to a sedation level of uh, minus one, so somebody who was um, appeared to be sleeping but was re- readily arousable and 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 able to communicate, um, and we ran the in, we uh, we ran the infusions in the patients who were um, receiving the drug at um, from ten o'clock in the evening until six o'clock in the morning and started titrating them down at um, six thirty and um, then turned them off uh, half an hour after that. So that was the that was the way that the intervention was administered. And um, and then you were using um, in terms of measuring uh, delirium. Could you tell our listeners how you were measuring? So it? we were, you know, t- Tim was talking about the different standards for psychiatric uh, assessment of delirium. There are two um, scales that we use to screen mechanically ventilated and non-ventilated patients in the ICU. The uh, Intensive Care Delirium Screening Checklist, the ICDSC, and the CAM ICU. And both are reasonably well-validated and have a number of caveats that there are several papers published about. But this this was the screening tool that we used to identify whether patients had delirium symptoms. And the reason we use a screening tool at all is that when we first validated the ICDSC, what we realized was that patients had symptoms, uh, uh, 40% of the patients who will have delirium symptoms will only have between midnight and 8 o'clock in the morning. So when you're trying to have you know, a, a clinician validate a diagnosis, that's not always a practical thing to do. <laughs> Um, so we used the screening tool, and then we had a clinician validate that the diagnosis was indeed a diagnosis of delirium. So that was how we came. Up, that was how we said these patients have or don't have delirium. And then just to, uh, another follow-up to um, if you could tell us how sick these patients were. You know, what, how often were they mechanically ventilated? Um, you know, and, and so forth. Right, I agree. Those those Apache twos in the low twenties are indicative of pretty significant severity of illness. Um, the I think in the men's trial it was a little bit higher, but uh, I, I feel like any time you get Apache two scores into the twenties, you're talking about a, a severely ill group of patients. And then also you had ninety percent mechanically ventilated patients in the trials, which again indicates uh, a significant burden of organ failure for this patient population. And the reason, and and, and and the reason we're mentioning the severity of illness as a, as a, it's it's not a badge of honor, but it's these are the patients in whom delirium is the most probable, and in whom 
the outcomes are the most problematic. And so, and also, um, in whom figuring out that they're delirious is the most challenging. So, if you were in the in the studies in the um, studies looking at um, delirium prevention or uh, delirium management in populations that are less sick, the uh, question is always, well, how how does this transpose to people who are as ill as this cohort was, and 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 it's the sickest ones that 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 are the most challenging to 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 identify delirium in and to manage delirium in. So that's why we were particularly pleased about being able to get this study done. Yes, well well thank you for for clarifying that. And certainly, you know, as as Tim mentioned, approximately ninety percent were mechanically ventilated who certainly cannot speak for themselves, require sedation and as we've already discussed, much of it ultrasleep quality. So certainly this is a, a group of patients at, at high risk for delirium. Um and what I'd like to do now is is ask you, Dr. Skorbik, to Tell us, first of all, what were you a priori uh, asking in terms of what was the primary study outcome that you were measuring? And then if you could summarize uh, your study findings for us. Thank you. Um, I, I, we would, so our, our, our um, initial premise, it was to, um, to ask the question whether sleep could be improved with this nocturnal intervention. And we um, asked patients to self-report sleep quality with a questionnaire that has been validated. And we also uh, screened patients for delirium and examined and, and validated that screening with um, with a clinical evaluation. We were um, disappointed when the sleep questionnaires didn't show any difference in terms of how the patients perceived that they slept. But we saw a dramatic reduction in the um, patients presenting with delirium in the group that had uh, received dexmedetomidine. And um, Tim highlighted how significant it was in the editorial that he wrote, but I think that what, what we were pleased to find is that um, these patients didn't manifest delirium and seemed to um, you know, never develop it if they in 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 a significantly higher proportion if they had received nocturnal dexmedetomidine, and I think that it was particularly um, uh, uh, rewarding to see this these results in a context where others had looked at prevention of delirium and management of delirium with other pharmacological agents. Um, and not found any benefit. So it was nice to have at least a positive result and something to offer patients at high risk for developing delirium who are admitted to the critical care setting. Yeah, just to... Oh, go ahead, Tim. I think you were going to say something. Oh, I was going to say, uh, Nitin, can I make a quick uh, comment or, or ask Absolutely. Ioana a question? So regarding, you know, you mentioned that you were disappointed when you didn't see a difference in the sleep questionnaire uh, results. And I was curious, do, do you feel like that that is evidence that there was no effect on sleep? And, and actually, maybe I'll just go ahead and tell you what, what my thought is and see if you agree or disagree. Um, I, I didn't necessarily view it that, that way. Um, I, I had questions about whether or not the information on sleep 
was informative uh, for two reasons. One is, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I wasn't aware that the LEADS questionnaire had been validated in mechanically ventilated patients. Uh, so, so I wasn't sure if it would perform in the same way, and that population is in the in the groups that had been studied with that in the past. And then the second, perhaps larger concern is because the patients in the nocturnal, nocturnal dexmedetomidine group did have a lower rate of delirium in the trial, and that was an absolute reduction, risk reduction of 26%, which is a substantial number um, who did not have delirium in the dexmedetomidine group that versus in the placebo group. I wondered if that in some way confounded the ability to detect changes on the sleep questionnaire. So, for example, if patients who in the placebo group were delirious relative to those who were not delirious or less delirious in the dexmedetomidine group were giving less reliable responses on the sleep questionnaire. So for those two reasons, I, I sort of looked at the sleep uh, results and thought, you know, I wasn't really sure if we had any strong evidence for or against dexmedetomidine having influenced sleep in this trial. What, what do you think? Thanks, Tegan. I, so I, I, I agree with all the points that you've made. Um, the questionnaire has been validated in patients who were in the ICU and in the study where the validation study, the the detail of how many of them, if any, were mechanically ventilated isn't all that clear. So I think that question remains in suspension. But when at the 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 bottom line is how do you measure the quality of sleep? And and I think that even though uh, polysomnography, which we had originally intended. Uh, to incorporate in this trial and didn't get incorporated with for a variety of reasons in the end, most of them practical the the um and circumstantial the even you know what is normal in an i c u the perception that we have at the bedside of whether or not a patient is sleeping or maybe not at the bedside but sort of standing uh, outside the room peering into the critically ill patient's room. Our perception of whether or not they're sleeping and whether they truly are sleeping uh, may be very divergent uh, because, you know, many patients, and we found this when we used PSG to study sedated, mechanically ventilated ICU patients, many patients may appear to be asleep simply because they are lying still with their eyes closed. But when you actually use an EEG to assess whether or not they're sleeping, you find out that anything but true restorative sleep is happening uh, for those patients. And in fact, the higher the doses, and this is especially true for the GABAergic agents like benzodiazepines and propofol, the higher doses of sedatives that a patient receives, the less of the restorative sleep waves uh, you end up seeing on EEG for those patients. So I think it's absolutely critical that, at, at, as you said, that this area be studied more carefully. Dr. Gerard, I wanted to, to, to follow up, and I think you, you, you all have already started talking about some of the future directions, which I think we're all very excited about, but just uh, sort of uh, to, to consider the findings of the current trial um, uh, before we move forward. So, as you mentioned, uh, you mentioned a 26% absolute uh, risk reduction, so 80% of participants who received the nocturnal nocturnal dexmedetomidine uh, remained delirium-free throughout their ICU stay compared with 54% in the placebo group. So obviously we, you know, granted it's a phase two trial, but this appears to be the first RCT that finds a pharmacologic treatment um, associated with the prevention of delirium in a high-risk group of patients. 
So I'd like to, to ask your overall uh, impressions of, of that finding. Well, I, I would say, first of all, I, re- I commend Joanna uh, and, and John and their colleagues that worked on this trial because uh, completing a randomized control trial, any randomized control trial in the ICU is a difficult task. And, and then I think, I know that you had described it earlier as uh, that you designed the intervention to be uh, simple, but my experience has been that any sedation trial in the ICU is uh, it has an added layer of complexity. And so to, to complete the trial, first and foremost, is a, a major success. Um, in terms of the way that I view the results, uh, I, I'm optimistic. I think that uh, especially when you look at this from the context of the previous trials suggesting that dexmedetomidine has a beneficial effect when used to treat delirious patients. Uh, having that prior, as I read this trial, I tend to uh, interpret it as being good evidence that uh, this that nocturnal dexmedetomidine does have a pharmacological effect and reduce the delirium in these patients. So, so I, I have that optimistic um, prior, and I think that the data are, are compelling in that respect. The the one thing I would say in terms of caution is that it is the first trial, and so that's that's a really great thing in one respect. But it, when it comes to how how do we apply this at the bedside, we have to remember that in critical care, and and none of us who conduct these trials in the ICU are immune to this possibility. In critical care, we have seen many positive trials that were then followed up by larger negative trials. And I'm certainly not predicting that in this case. My expectation is that future trials will bear out uh, the effect of dexmedetomidine as a preventative strategy for reducing delirium in the ICU. But that said, I, I I think we just have to be cautious uh, because we, we know that we need multiple randomized control trials we, before we recommend widespread changes for the way we treat patients. Now, does that mean that I won't use dexmedetomidine in, in the ICU for a patient that I think needs a pharmacologic sleep agent? No, I think I probably will consider dexmedetomidine um, certainly as an alternative to completely unproven or unstudied strategies. There are, there are many of us uh, who give drugs like melatonin or antipsychotics at night thinking that they will help the patients uh, with sleep, and they've never been proven to have that effect during critical illness. So if someone were to be at the bedside in the ICU and think, you know, I, I, I've noticed a lot of sleep-wake disturbance for this patient. I really want to try to do something to help promote sleep. And they've already maximized the kind of non-pharmacological strategies that Joanna described earlier that, that we should be doing, but we sometimes fail to do. Then rather than going for an antipsychotic, which is, has no evidence supporting it in this population, dexmedetomidine should be considered. Will I use it for all patients? Not yet. But will I use it for some? I think so. I was going to, and, and thanks, Tim, I completely agree. I think, I think you know, we have a little bit of a, an obligation and feel compelled to say things like, we are going to wait to have several RCTs to document the evidence and the benefit of this intervention um, 
but the reality is that we've been giving antipsychotics to people for decades with absolutely no evidence and more and more accumulation of there being no benefit in the recent literature and a lot of you know mounting concerns for harm so i think that 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 has to be balanced as you nicely said yeah and i think it's important to point out that uh, that that uh, this trial that we're discussing today was published right on the heels of the publication um, by the Dutch group of the REDUCE trial, which was a very large multi-center trial in Europe comparing haloperidol as prophylaxis for delirium in high-risk ICU patients with placebo. And they found absolutely no difference in terms of delirium between those who received the prophylactic haloperidol and those who received the placebo. Now, that they weren't specifically giving it at night to, to, in order to promote sleep, but it's, it's just another piece of evidence that what is often done, which is to give antipsychotics in the ICU, uh, may have no effect at all. Certainly in terms of prophylaxis, I think this trial, uh, the REDUCE trial, was the best uh, evidence that we have that antipsychotics, or at least specifically haloperidol, does not prevent delirium, even in high-risk ICU patients. I think these are these are excellent points, and I think Tim's point that to be cautious, um, you know, history tells us to be cautious, cautious with the first positive trial, but certainly that doesn't justify doing things that now have been proven, as you mentioned, the the recent trial about prophylactic haldol that don't work, and obviously, you know, you worry about in patients with a long QT in the ICU. Um, so I'd like to go back to I think, to I think it's also Scorbitt. challenging, if I can add to, a thought to that, because when a patient gets agitated, everybody gets excited about calming them down. And I think that we need, first of all, to be more mindful about whether people are frightened. If you ask the question, then you can reassure them before they get agitated. I also think that there's a lot of room for the non-pharmacological um, interventions throughout the day, right? If you mobilize patients, it's a little like small children. If they get tired from being mobilized during the day, they may sleep better at night. All of those things <clears throat> haven't been studied formally, but I think may uh, uh, improve patient outcomes. But there's the the perception, but one of the reasons that the trial took as long as it took was because we had um, difficulty getting consent. If patients were um, getting a sedative, we would propose giving Dex at night to the family, and the family would say, well, why would you give them another medication? They're already sleeping. So there's this, there's a perception by, by, by families also that, the, that being asleep is good in the same way that there's a belief by physicians that antipsychotics may work, right? So belief drives a lot of what we do. And I think it's the shift from belief to applying the evidence that remains this, the challenge and the discussion. I, I think bringing it up as a discussion is a hugely important part of um, changing practice. That's a great point, Dr. Skrobik. And I wanted to get to some of the potential limitations of the paper, and you acknowledged several um, in the in the discussion. Um, I guess one, obviously, it's a small trial, but there weren't changes in other clinical improvement in other clinical outcomes. Um, also, as you just mentioned, most screen patients were not eligible for enrollment, um, and that was uh, obviously a challenge getting people to consent, families to consent. Um, and you weren't able to measure post-ICU outcomes. Uh, I think another issue that could limit generalizability, and I would ask you to comment, would 
was, you know, it's two hospitals. So was there a difference in your findings across the two hospitals? Were there differences in care? Um, did, were you able to look at this uh, at all uh, as you, you looked know, at the, the The two hospitals have had a, 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 a longstanding history of collaborative <clears throat> trials. So we have, uh, we have a very similar way of screening and of evaluating patients for delirium, and I think that that was uh, strength. Um, but it is also true that that it would not necessarily be generalizable to other uh, institutions. <clears throat> I think the population didn't include trauma patients or cardiac surgery patients, um, and I think that. But we we tried to we we compared the cohorts and the and the uh, diagnoses. And we're mindful to at least uh, look at what the delirium risk scores were across the two populations, and they were comparable across the board for the for the for the relevant topic. Um, I think there's a you know there's there's a I, I think a, a two center trial is always better uh, than a single center. But I I also um, don't want to diminish the the importance of the signal as 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 Tim has highlighted. That's fair. That, that's fair enough. Uh, and 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 Dr. Gerard, any um, other comments from from you regarding limitations of the study or um, in terms of caution in applying it um, uh, to other hospitals? Well, I think that uh, maybe the best way for me to uh, to highlight. Um, Limitations, and I think we've discussed most of them already. Um, but but that would be to describe what I'd like to see in the next trial. And and I don't know, uh, Joanna, if you and John are planning to do a, a larger multicenter trial, uh, or if others Never will do that. I'm <laughs> I'm not sure who's going to do the trial. But if if what I would like to see in the next trial uh, is that uh, there would be more data about mechanism. You know, we've already discussed this. So I don't want to belabor the point. But I think it would be fantastic when doing a, a similar trial in the future to actually have uh, EEG data because understanding mechanism is helpful for a number of reasons. Uh, and, and certainly it would be very informative if we, uh, in a follow-up trial, found that the effect on dexmedetomidine was confirmed. However, it wasn't through the mechanism that, that's proposed. I, I think it's likely that there is an effect on sleep, but it would certainly help us uh, in, in multiple ways as we seek to understand delirium uh, in, a, in a more mechanistic manner to know whether or not dexmedetomidine is truly affecting sleep and then through a mediation analysis to understand if that was what tr led to a change in delirium. So I'd like to see a PSG or EEG done in a future trial. I also would would be very interested to in comparing the nocturnal dex not only to a control group for that, that wasn't receiving dexmedetomidine at all, but to a group that receives 24-hour dexmedetomidine. Uh, you know, I think that Joanna outlined some uh, some important reasons that they chose to study nocturnal dexmedetomidine. Uh, including the fact that they thought it would affect sleep, and so naturally you give it at night in order to promote sleep, but also because of the cost issue, and uh, it's certainly uh, less expensive if you give less of the drug. 
but the costs are coming down, certainly in the United States. Uh, they're quite a bit uh, lower than they had been in the past. And until we know uh, for, from EEG data whether dexmedetomidine is affecting the brain primarily through sleep or through other mechanisms, I think that there's a potential that 24-hour dexmedetomidine may have uh, even more of a benefit now, that's a hypothesis, and it needs to be tested. I, I, I can't say with any certainty that that would be the case. But I would be interested in seeing three arms, a 24- or around-the-clock dexmedetomidine group, a nocturnal dexmedetomidine group, and, the, and then a no-dexmedetomidine group. And then the last thing, uh, actually two more things. One is, and Nitin, you mentioned this, long-term outcomes, I think, are absolutely critical, N not just for the study of dexmedetomidine, but for the study of any intervention during critical illness. We now know from numerous studies that long-term outcomes are dramatically altered for a sizable percentage of patients who survive critical illness. And, and our goal really is, and, and Joanna's nicely highlighted the human element here, our goal is not just that patients would survive, but that they would thrive. And you know, I take that word from the Society of Critical Care Medicine's current initiative. We really want patients to thrive and to get back to doing the things that they were doing before and to living their lives to the fullest. And, and just knowing how they do in the hospital doesn't really tell us whether or not the interventions that we're studying facilitates that. So we, we need to study long-term outcomes, and it, it would be very important in future trials to know if those patients who had less delirium from dexmedetomidine or any intervention that's being studied also went on to have better long-term outcomes, including cognitive and psychological outcomes. Uh, and then finally, the last thing is that I would be interested in seeing this studied in a broader population of patients. Uh, I, I think that when you do the initial randomized trial, trial of an intervention, you really want to focus on a very specific hypothesis, and, and that's what was done in this trial, and, and I think that makes a lot of sense for the first trial. But in future trials, I would, I would actually not exclude those patients who were delirious at screening, but include them and make it a combined uh, prevention and treatment trial. Because for the very same reasons that dexmedetomidine might prevent delirium, it could also reduce the, delirium, reduce the duration of delirium through the promotion of sleep. Uh, so, so I think that you could design a trial that included both the patients who are already delirious earlier in their ICU stay, and that's, that is a su substantial percentage of patients who, who arrive in the ICU with delirium already uh, affecting their course of illness, as well as those patients that were studied in this trial that don't yet have delirium. And, and then the results would also be more generalizable because you do have to wonder what kind of patient is it, or, or more specifically, what kind of brain is it? It, it? Is it a more resilient brain that in the midst of critical illness, you know, and we've already discussed the high Apache 2 scores, uh, mechanical ventilation, ongoing sedation. So all of these three things were affecting these patients, and yet all the patients who were studied did not have delirium at the time of screening. So to me, that suggests that these are a population that have perhaps healthier brains than many of the other patients who were excluded because they already had delirium. And it might be that dexmedetomidine um, could give some benefit to not only the, the patients who are not delirious at enrollment with a health, perhaps a healthier brain, but to those who are already delirious at the time of presentation. 
So at the risk of making this the longest podcast on record, I just wanted to, <laughs> I, I wanted to, I wanted to add a thought to everything that you said, um, Tim. I think that part of the challenge in conducting trials, particularly if they're large, multi-center trials, looking at more than one intervention or applied to more than one population is that they take time. And by the time by the time you're finished with them, what you should have done has now been published as part of the more recent literature. And one of the points that you've raised, Tim, that has to do with long-term outcomes is something that I would um, not only agree with, but, but bonify by uh, adding stratification by frailty. And I think we are we are starting to understand that overall frailty measured with um, frailty scales like those that are applied across the Canadian province of Nova Scotia at each entry and exit point of healthcare um, predict outcomes. We know that worsening frailty is associated with outcomes, but the modified frailty score that the uh, Nova Scotia province uses incorporates both cognitive and uh, physical frailty. And it may be that people who are frail to begin with react differently to dexmetadomidine than people who are not. And I think that that would be also be an important um, uh, element to identify. When um, Mirsky and colleagues looked at dexmetadomidine administration and tested cognition in neuro-ICU patients and compared it to propofol, um, in real time on site, the and without looking at six months uh, um, or, or psychological fallout, they found a big difference in cognitive capacity in people with traumatic brain injury. So I think that there's the how much reserve you have, how much frailty you have, and then the drug that you're exposed to, and it's probably a combination of those things that determine outcomes. If we are doing large RCTs that pose one question with a simple exposure, we're not getting at all of those important elements of understanding mechanisms, as you said, Tim, and and who we should be giving what drug to. Well, I want to thank you both. This has been a, a great discussion, and Dr. Skrobik for uh, leading this uh, trial that is a, a very interesting and uh, and it, it it provides a lot more questions than answers, which is what make it, makes it exciting. And I think Dr. Gerard has provided a roadmap for some of our listeners who are interested in doing this research. There's a lot of different uh, things that can be answered going forward. So to our listeners, I'd like to thank you and please encourage you to read the uh, original articles. They go to atsjournals.org and you'll find Dr. Skrobik's article Low-dose nocturnal dexmedetomidine prevents ICU delirium, a randomized placebo-controlled trial, as well as uh, the editorial that Dr. Gerard wrote, uh, co-wrote. Please subscribe to our Out of the Blue podcast by finding them in iTunes or your favorite podcast player by searching for American Thoracic Society. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.